And we are back for one last segment on the bat around, and we've made our connection with a, another Orioles Hall of Famer, and that is uh, the great closer, Greg Olson. He joins us. Otter, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Do you know Adam Gladstone at all? He's my co-host today. Not. We met um, years ago when he was in town for, uh, I think it was a cool kids. Uh, were you here, Greg, for that four-day golf tournament? No. Through the oh, Celebrity Players yeah, Tour? Yeah, that was a while back. A lot, yeah, long time ago, yeah, yep. All right. Well, Adam, just to give you his background, was a minor league umpire and uh, then was general manager of the uh, Aberdeen, the, the uh, York Revolution and worked with Chris Hoyles there for a good bit. And then All was right. And then was Buck's video coordinator the first year of instant replay. So he's, okay. he's a, he's well, a veteran of the game. Uh, Very good. What does opening day mean to you? It's vastly different, I'm sure, today, Greg, than it was when you were a player. But what does it mean to you still? Oh, opening day is, you know, the zero ERA. And uh, just I'm on the team. You know, there there wasn't very many years other than my, you know, couple years in Baltimore after my rookie year where opening day was an assured thing. And, um so every opening day was, you know, all right, I'm back here again. Let's, you know, let's do the best with my zero ERA and make make it last as long as I can. Greg, we had a guest on the show earlier that you've crossed paths with, Rob Nelson, the inventor of Big League Chew Bubblegum. And Nelly told me a story about, I guess you were with Billy or Cal one day and, and you guys were having a conversation. And, and Nelly's left-handed and he, he's a little out-of-the-box thinker. And he asked you the question, if you were paid a million dollars a year towards the tail end of your career to be the opener, but not the closer, and just pitch the first inning of every game, <laughs> you'd said no. You didn't want that. And, and Nelly's – we just had Ned Rice on, who's the assistant GM of the Phillies, who's huge into the advanced analytics and everything that goes with it. And the talk was, are the first three outs of the game – just as important as, as the, the last, last three outs of the game. Interesting topic. So, you know, what are you? I have an idea of what your thoughts are, but we'd love to hear what your thoughts are about that now. Well, I mean, they are every every out's important, and uh, you know, in the grand scheme, it's you, you know, each team gets twenty seven, and each out should be as important. Um, I just think if you ask guys that have been in the bullpen how difficult it is to get the last three. Uh, you would it, Hitters' focuses are different throughout the game, and they will admit that where, you know, sixth inning of an 8-2 to two game, they're, they're not as locked in in the at-bat as they are in the ninth inning of a 3-2 to two game. And so just the hitters' focus on, you know, what the inning is changes – how difficult it is to get uh, to get those outs. The, the you know what I'm saying? The, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. The flip side of that, though, is how difficult was it for you when you were in your prime? I'm sure there were a handful of times that the manager knew you you needed a little work, and he'd get you in a non-save situation. How hard was it to get that adrenaline to the same level that helped you succeed in the ninth? But if it was the sixth in an eight to two game, you just couldn't reach that same level. 
No, I never, I never could reach it, and I never understood it, you know, on the outside. Um, I watched, it was, uh, I just did Dream Week with the Orioles, and Tom Needenger was down there, and he was the closer in 88 and when I got called up. And I remember sitting in the bullpen with him, and they called down and said, hey, Needs, you know, you need an inning, you got, you know, you got the ninth. And he just kind of looks down the bullpen, and it was, you know, myself, Kurt Schilling, a um, couple other young puppies, and then, you know, a couple guys that had been there. He goes, I'll give anybody, you know, 50 bucks if they take this inning. I hate these innings. <laughs> and I'm just like, and I'm just looking at him going, oh, yeah, I want to pitch a big league inning, give me, you know, <laughs> and 50 bucks. Um, and then later, later, you know, once I got established as a closer, yeah, the adrenaline's just not there. And those games were the ones that, you know, I made a mess out of. I, you know, my ERA was, much higher than it was in save situations just because there was no adrenaline and, and uh, the adrenaline started to kick in when I had runners on second and third and one run already in and I was about to I was about to wreck my ERA for the season. Hey Greg, you got you got caught up at, at, at age 21 to the big leagues. When in your career did you realize just before the major league, obviously before the major league level that you said, hey, closing i can do this that there's a, there's a and it sounds funny somewhat of a comfort level but i want that pressure i want the ball then when did you realize if if i can interrupt you were a closer in college partly weren't you greg yeah i closed my last two years in college okay um you know i don't know if there was ever i don't know what what time or when i said that you know i can close at the big league level you just that's that's one of those where, you know, I mean, even, even back when I came up in 88, 89, you know, the closer's role was not real defined. Right. And there, there, it wasn't really recognized quite yet. I don't remember when the blown save came, you know, started coming into effect, but sure didn't seem like it was much before 88. And, uh, you just, I, I didn't really think about it, you know, I mean, main goal was get to the big leagues. And I didn't know what that looked like. I knew that I enjoyed closing more than I did starting just because I couldn't handle the sitting around for four or five days and, and trying to, you know, trying to wait on my next start. So I was more of a day-to-day guy. I had, I had a loose arm. I could come back, you know, well the next day or two days in a row. And, um, I don't know what day it was, you know, when it was that I said I could do it. I just remember my first spring training in 89, somebody asked me if I thought I could save 20 games at the big league level. I was like, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, you know, if I get 40 save opportunities, then I, I should be able to save 20. You know, but it was just, you know, I got I to look like, you serious? Yeah, why not? I don't, you know, you don't know what I can do, and I don't know what I can do here, but. So I, I, I never figured out when, you know, I, I thought I belonged there as a closer until I actually, you know, got feet down in 89. We're talking with Greg Olson, former closer of the Baltimore Orioles and uh, an Oriole Hall of Famer as well. Greg, um, the, the, the role of the closer, it's mostly been in its history when you think about it, and I'm a good bit older than you, I remember Dick Raddatz being one of the first guys, and he was just 6'5", 
and threw 95 miles an hour back in the 60s. Goose Gossage. And then there was the guys that were the trick pitches with a knuckleball or a screwball. You were one of the only guys that really made his living on on the curveball. Um, how much pressure was it for you? Because you didn't really want to throw strikes per se. You wanted the ball to appear as if it was a strike, but really never be in the zone. Um. Well, I, I did throw hard. I had, to, you know, I could. You had a ninety-four. I, you were ninety-four, weren't you? Yeah, you can't. I, I couldn't go out there and just throw all breaking balls. Right. Um, the hitter is still too good for that. Um. Yeah, you know, I mean, that, that's pitching. In essence, pitching is, you know, me, me throwing something that appears to be a strike mm-hmm. and ends up ends ends up as a ball. Or me, you know, doing a Greg Maddox where I throw something that appears to be a ball and then comes back as a strike. And so you're trying to give the, the hitter something different. I, you know, I just relied on both of my pitches at, at the same time. And for my breaking ball, the best ones were on the bottom of the zone and falling out of it. And a lot of times I didn't get those, you know, via the umpire because it ended up too low out of the zone. But I think it might have been coming in the strike zone at the low point. Um, so, yeah, I, I tried, you know, for my breaking ball, I tried. I spent most of my time, you know, trying to keep it below the zone because it had the appearance initially of being a strike. And then if, if the hitter went after it, then usually he was out at some point. I've got I've got the memory of you absolutely screwing their legs into the ground a little bit. And it's two hitters that got known much later in their careers as having been guys that cheated the game somewhat. Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco. Did you break in against was your first game against the Oakland A's? Um my first save was uh, my first real save was. Yeah, right. I got saved against Boston and uh three and a third innings earlier in the, earlier that month. How was but, your, Yeah, my first first real one was against Oakland. How was your record over the career against those two big right-handed hitters? McGuire um, and Canseco. McGuire McGuire took me deep once. <laughs> uh didn't have a great batting average. Um I Canseco, I think Canseco, I remember Canseco beat me one game on a single to right field. But for the most part, you know, I had the better of the two. Now, I remember you having the better of those two because I can, I can envision some of the swings they had against you. When you were facing guys like that, you had been playing baseball for a good while as a kid, into college, into the pros. Did you ever sort of wonder if something was different with those kind of guys? Because you were facing a lot of the guys in that time period that were cheating the game. You know what? It uh, wasn't really relevant, or uh, it might not be the right word, but I I, I didn't look at him like that. Okay. You know, I, I remember McGuire came out with the Andrew Diaz team, and um, didn't really bother me. Didn't I? Didn't care. Mm-hmm. You know, um, at the end of that, towards the end of my career, when uh, Bonds and Sosa. And all of a sudden, it started becoming pretty prevalent that a lot of guys are doing things, you know, guys having, you know, a guy that 
played out here for the Angels having 30 home runs. It was like, you know, shouldn't shouldn't be in the big league level, in my opinion. And um, you start seeing like things like that. Then it started bothering me a little bit. Um, but there's nothing you can do about it. Yep. You know, I I could I could have went about it and cheated as well. You know, so that option was open to everybody. Everybody could have cheated. Yep. So if you look at it that way, then you go, okay, well, fields the field is what it is. I could do what they're doing. I don't know what it would do to me as a pitcher, but I could do it too. So why is it really unfair? Hey, you know, hey, Greg. I know, fifteen, sixteen years ago, when when you when you last played, um, and everybody that we've talked to that that has stopped playing at the major league level, for the most part, they 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 have to find that competitiveness somewhere else. And I know for you, you certainly enjoy golf and, and, and play it as much as possible. Has that competitive desire ever crossed your mind of saying, as you're watching, and I'm assuming you're still watching major league games to this day, that, hey, you know what? I see something. I wish I had the opportunity to to talk about that or, or to work with guys to maybe help them achieve the success that you had at the major league level because I'm assuming that fantasy camp isn't cutting it for you just to do it at that point. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I'd love to help. I love to help guys. Um, you know, I'll do some lessons out here, and I've been coaching. You know, my boys for a while. I'm, I'm about done now, but uh, you know, I've talked to Buck about coming back and, and and coaching at some level. It's just you know, family, young kids. And, you know, the season's a long one. It's a grind, and yeah. it's hard to be away that much. And so, you know, if there was some aspect of where I could, you know, pop in and, and go talk to some guys and, and help with, you know, whatever breaking ball they're throwing. Or, you know, I had a, had a lot of life lessons over my career of, of relearning. After I hurt my elbow, I had to relearn how to pitch. And, and then the stuff never quite came back. So I had to, you know, I had to learn how to stay at the big league level. So I had a lot of life lessons that I'd love to share and pass on. It's just, you know, the aspect or the timing hasn't been right. Did I, did I get it right? Cause I've had you on the show a couple times. Were you the, were you on the mound when Buck intentionally walked, um, Barry Bonds with the bases loaded or were you just at the game? I was on the mound. You were on the mound. Okay. Yep. And I know I probably asked you this, and I probably was trying to do ten things at once. What was your answer to that? Well, and, what did that make you feel like? And correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. We're not on radio. We're we're on the computer. So you can tell us exactly <laughs> what went through your mind when, right. when Buck held up four fingers. Right. Uh, and you can uh... – <laughs> Well, I don't know how long do you guys got? <laughs> I got we got two three minutes. Okay. Well, uh, story story is that I came in in the eighth inning, um, and Bonds was not playing that day, so Bonds came in to pinch hit, and he was the tying run in the eighth. And so I came in, had a three one count. Sorry, kind of outside. Um, had a three-one count on Bonds, threw a threw a good breaking ball which he wasn't expecting, and so then I got to three-two, and and I tell most of the people a lot of my strikeouts after I hurt my elbow were on O-two, two-two, one-two fastballs that were good pitches, but everybody was sitting on my breaking ball, so I throw Bonds a three-two fastball that if I had to put a baseball in the perfect down and away spot, this ball was 
perfect. And he's Barry Bonds, so is ball four. So he goes and peels off all his gear, and stand, he's standing in the batter's box, you know. And so he peels off the elbow pad, the shin pad, whatever pad that he had, and drops him in the box, and he walks down to first base, and I'm standing on the mound going, everybody else in the world is out. Right. I should be in the dugout right now, and you're walking down to first base like I just intentionally walked you. I was right. like, well, you got to be kidding me. And so – I get the next guy out. starts to starts to rain. Dave Delucci hits a home run for us in the top of the ninth, so I'm up three, and now it's raining pretty decent. And um, I found out that night I'm not I'm not much I wasn't much of a mutter. <laughs> so start the ninth, get the first guy out, walk, base hit, walk. Um, ends up you know. Ends up, I made a mess out of everything, and I uh, got bases loaded, two outs, and the two-run lead, and Bonds comes back up. And with all the walks and everything else, th- it was a high-intensity inning. It was, um, I was in the 40 pitches, and I, w- I was exhausted. And so, you know, I'm done. I'm on the mound. I'm done. And there was nobody better in the bullpen. Right. So, um, you know. Bonds comes back up, and I'm just kind of running through scenarios in my head. And uh, Showalter just steps to the top step and puts up the four fingers to my catcher, Kelly Stinnett. And Stinnett looks at him, nods, looks around, <laughs> looks back at him again like, wait, what? <laughs> and, um, you know, gives me the four fingers. And so I walk Bonds. Next guy comes up, and Brent Maine, who'd been a pain in my butt most of my career. Right. And uh, one, two count, try to punch him out, miss, two, two, three, two. And then on, I, I have to throw five, three, two fastballs middle of the plate. And he fouls them all off. And I've already walked six now. <laughs> so um, it was a stressful, highly stressful inning. Well, after the game, I get main, main hits a sinking line, drive out to right field. My right fielder loses it in the lights. You know, makes a nice catch down, basically laying down out in right field right. to get out of the, you know, to get it out of the lights. And uh, go walking in after the game. And my favorite part of the story is uh, one of our pitchers, Willie Blair, who's a Kentucky boy. I remember Willie. Yeah. Um, meets me at the at the in the candlestick as you're walking into all the clubhouses. There's a double door that pushes in, and I go pushing in, and he's standing there in his you know underwear and a t-shirt. <laughs> And he's got two Bud Lights, and he just looks at me and hands me one, and he goes, damn, you're fun to watch. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I, I, I grabbed the Bud Light and grabbed the other Bud Light, and, you know, by the time I get in there and peel off all my wet stuff and kind of sit there for a second, I go, you know, walking into Buck's office. I was like, hey, Buck, you got a second? He goes, yeah, what do you got? <laughs> and I said, hey, I, apparently we just did something that hasn't been done in 47 years. Right. And he just looks at me and goes, really? And I was like, yeah. And I said, next time we do something that hasn't been done in 47 years, can we have a bound conversation? <laughs> and That's he hilarious. just looks at me and he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, I wanted to kill him. Right. I said, I could have hit Bonds in the middle of the back. Right. With everything that I had left and been in the same situation. And right. he just kind of looks at me and goes, I didn't even think of that. And I said, oh, I, I thought about it after he peeled off all the stuff. And I was like, at some point, at some point, he's a dead man. Right. 
And um, he just kind of looks at me and goes, I didn't even think about that. And I said, mound conversation. That's great. That's great. Hey, before we let you go, that is a tremendous story. Before we let you go, tell our uh, listeners uh, here uh, and the folks watching on Facebook Live what Greg Olson is doing today business-wise, because I know, but I think they'd be interested. Well, I I own a company called Toolshed Sports and currently in the process of selling that and figuring out what the next step for for myself is. And uh, don't know what that looks like right now. All right. But Toolshed has been in the, like, sort of underwear business? Yeah, yeah. We uh, do, uh, you know, I guess they're phrase now everybody just calls them under armor shorts which yep. is you know the compre- the compression under under gear and uh we sell the 27 major league teams and a couple nfl teams it's good stuff all right well so. the guy to the guy to reach out in baltimore now may be your old teammate brady anderson's more and more involved in the front office if you come up with that idea of doing something for the club all right well I w- yep i would love to Thank all you. right hey thanks very much greg Appreciate it. My pleasure, Stan. All right. It was nice talking to you guys. You too. Thanks, Greg.